The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. And good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher, higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag Big Beacon Radio. And, and uh, today we're fortunate to have a, uh, a faculty member, a professor, a, a former uh, provost and um, uh, vice president of arts and sciences with us from Columbia University, uh, Jonathan R. Cole. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, and, and uh, I, I had a lot of fun kind of uh, looking through your, your latest uh, uh, writing on the subject of higher education, and, and we want to talk about the changing future of higher education here in a minute. But, but the show is actually very interested in our guests and, and uh, how they got to where they, they got, both as inspiration to uh, young people and as uh, exemplars of uh, how a higher education uh, um, serves us. So... Um, You've been a faculty member, VP of Arts and Sciences, a provost at Columbia for 14 years. You're a scholar of the sociology of science. But uh, let's hop in the time machine. And uh, what were some of the early experiences in your life that were uh, crucial to leading you on the, uh, the path that you followed? Well, I think it's important that I came from a rather academic family. My mother was a Ph.D. student at Columbia. My brother actually went to Columbia. I, and, uh, despite the fact that I was a very good baseball player in high school and was courted by Major League Baseball teams, I never thought of myself as uh, a likely Major League prospect. And I always anticipated that I would go to the college. And the college, it always seemed to me, uh, the one that was most fitting for me was Columbia because of the traditions in my family and because of the way in which I had always thought about it. Um, but I think I played baseball and basketball, and, and I, my father was in the theater. Um, many people thought I would go into the theater. They didn't think of me that likely to go into academics, but I was influenced by great teachers at Columbia, and a number of those great teachers thought that I ought to, uh, uh, to go on. I was also influenced by the existence of the Vietnam War, and people mm -hmm. were uh, trying to avoid uh, participation in that uh, in, in that war, so uh, you were deferred, of course, if you went to graduate school. So I did go to graduate school, but it went sociology rather than history. Um, and from there, unlikely, and unlike most uh, universities who tell you and warn you against hiring your own, they did hire me. 
and I've never been able to break the umbilical cord since. A uh, faculty member and then someone thought I would be a good administrator, and I wound up with 17 years of administration before going back to my true love and my real calling, which was to teach and do research and to lecture around the world. So that's where I am today. That, that's a great story. I'm just curious, what, uh, what position did you play in, uh, as, as a baseball player? I was a pitcher, actually, a left-handed pitcher. pitcher. You know, they need a lot of those in baseball these days. But uh, uh, back then, I pitched uh, in New York City at a public high school. We went to the uh, city championships and uh, had the fortune of uh, striking out a number of people who did go to the, the major leagues. Um, so um, I was I was a real prospect, I, I, I suppose, for a while until I hurt my arm in my in my uh, freshman year in in, uh, in college, and then I had to switch to the outfield. Uh, and thanks for and, and thanks for um, sharing that. And then one of the things that we talk about uh, is um, in the book uh, "A Whole New Engineer," which uh, is is part of what the program's about. We talk about unleashing experiences and connects with some of the things you talk about in your book, where where someone trusting us uh, enables us to have the courage to to go do something unusual or, or different with our lives. And I, I'm hearing a fair amount of tradition, but but I mean it wasn't um, it wasn't preordained that you would rise to become. Uh, uh, provost of a great school like Columbia. So I'm curious what, what might have been some of the unleashing experiences or unleashing influences on you that enabled you to, 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 to go further and farther. Well, I think uh, a lot of it had to do with my teachers at Columbia. They were extraordinarily encouraging. Um, I um, studied with some of the real great stars of uh, the 1960s at Columbia, people like Robert Merton in sociology, yeah. Dick Hofstetter in, uh, in history, and um, I was really kind of an organized dilettante who used to roam the faculty for great, uh, great teachers like Meyer Shapiro in art history. I kind of believed that eclecticism was the right way to go. But fortunately, those uh, people uh, noticed me in some way, and they encouraged me to go on to graduate school and perhaps uh, think about the professoriate. And it was Robert Merton, the sociologist and really the father of the sociology of science, who had the biggest influence on me and certainly uh, influenced me going into the academic world and to uh, sociology rather than history. Hmm. No, another great story. And I'm I'm wondering, is it, yeah, so is it, uh, yeah, so... You know, we've we've gone a little bit down the road from from those days when 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 people like that were as accessible maybe as they are, and we've gotten to the point where faculty uh, at top schools are have more star power than they're they're sought like uh, top prospects, you know, like top major league prospects in some ways. Is it is it still possible to roam the halls of Columbia and and have those kinds of conversations like back back in back in the '60s when you were doing it? Yeah, I think I think it is, but uh, perhaps a little bit more difficult uh, these days. We have so many uh, cosmopolitan faculty members who travel all over the world to talk about their research, to actually yeah. engage in collaborations on their research. But we also have more international teaching as well, and I think that uh, uh, faculty members are interested in, uh, contrary to widespread belief, uh, full-time faculty members yeah. are interested in bright students who have ideas and who want to to uh, exchange ideas with uh, the professor. Most of the uh, younger people, for obvious reasons, 
are uh, concerned about even going to visit faculty members, and uh, they, they don't. There is also an enormous advantage for being at a smaller school or an Ivy-like college or uh, the University of Chicago or Stanford where the classes aren't so large. If you're in a class of a 1,000, it's going to be harder to get to know a professor and for them harder to get to know you. Um, and that's one of the reasons why these private institutions are very often the ones that are most desired by uh, among the very uh, top students in the country. But I do think it's still possible uh, to form a relationship, even as an undergraduate, to do research as an undergraduate, and to um, and and to have faculty members deeply concerned with the growth of undergraduates. Yeah, and, and you know we have a fair number of people, you know, academics on the show, and I, you know, I had a 27-year academic career myself at a at at large public universities, and there you under the hood, there usually are these stories of individual contact, as you as you were saying, even even at even at our big at our big publics. I'd like to turn to uh, this fascinating and sweeping book that you've just written uh, toward a more perfect uh, university. Uh, uh, in, enjoyed uh, spending some time with it, and I'm just curious what uh, what inspired uh, this this particular project for you. Well, I wrote a previous book called The Great American University, and it was about how the American uh, universities became the greatest in the world, how they rose to pro- preeminence, um, the kinds of discoveries that people were unaware of that have altered and changed our lives and the lives of people in the world that came from these research universities, uh, discoveries that people really didn't know very much about, and they didn't realize how much influence these discoveries had had on their lives, whether it's their health or whether it is aspects of um, the world of electronics and the like. And then I also wanted to uh, pose a set of uh, queries about what are threats to the potential preeminence of the uh, universities. Well, as it turns out, um, there really aren't any direct threats to the system of higher education, but as Walt Kelly, the famous uh, cartoonist, once said through his uh, Pogo, Pogo, who was his uh, cartoon character, he said, you know, I've seen the enemy and he is us. Yep. And so one of the uh, issues that I'm interested in is how uh, the United States could have created such a miraculously good system in so many ways and uh, also be capable of destroying it, uh, not because of what's going on in China or Japan or Europe, but because of what we're doing to ourselves. And I was interested in trying to think then about what could make our universities still better? I mean, how could they reach their maximum potential as institutions? Because in my mind, while there were many great universities, there were many, many problems which still existed that um, we hadn't even attacked, much less solved. And so this is a book, really a normative book, about what we ought to do to our universities to make them still better institutions. And that's why I took up uh, uh, my pen to, uh, to write uh, toward a more perfect university. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious. So, you know, there are people, of course, that disagree with you know the la- your assertion that there there are no real threats. So, uh, you know, Clay Christensen at Harvard says that uh, universities as we know them are being disrupted, and offers examples of the rise of for profits and and uh, 
and and uh, the rise of ed- educational technology. And you address mm-hmm. these things in, in in your book. And then there are guys like Peter Thiel that that are offering young people scholarships to skip university altogether and start their companies uh, straight away. And so, I, I guess I'm. You know, what's your what's your answer to critics like that that say that uh, there that there really are some challenges uh, that 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 are existential threats to the system? Well, I think that there are um, threats which involve uh, cost and affordability and access yep. to uh, these institutions, uh, and it's certainly the concern of parents and their children as to whether or not they can actually get into college and go to college, uh, given the, uh, the cost of some of these institutions, although I think that's way overblown uh, in most of the media. But I think Clay Christensen, while a, a formidable uh, thinker, um, has made, you know, committed the fallacy of, in some sense of thinking that uh, all, all uh, institutions are sort of equally disruptable. Uh, technology has always been around higher education, and it will always be disruptive in some sense. I mean, even the correspondence course was disruptive, or, or Sunrise Semester, which used to be on television on Channel 2 at 6 o'clock in the morning, if you could wake up that early to take a course on the Civil War, uh, given by Professor James Shenton, um, and there continue to be, you know, the, the the rise of the internet, the effects on libraries, and and that will continue, and the rise of MOOCs and the rise of other platforms for um, rethinking the way in which we teach and the way in which we transmit information. But that doesn't mean, mean that there will be an end to brick and mortar. Certainly, at the at the better institutions, both public and uh, private, because of a number of factors. One is that I think students learn almost as much outside of the classroom as they do inside. So rubbing minds up against minds is a very important aspect of, uh, of college life. Forming networks of individuals that will go on for a lifetime are very important for, uh, for students. And uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that I think that you can only do so much with the impersonality of MOOCs um, that uh, you know are not really part of the rich experience at the best colleges experienced by uh, students who are very serious uh, students. I could say a lot more about this, but I don't know that you would like me to uh, go on. No, no, and I, I, I appreciate your elaborating on the point, and and I think I think I think this is a, an interesting um, point, and I think one of the things that. Um, you know, we the 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 rise of MOOCs is an interesting thing, and I think we want to we want to uh, deal with that. But I agree with you; technology has been with us, and it, if 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 MOOCs are going to be disruptive, or or educational technology is going to be disruptive, there's going to be something else under the hood, and it's going to be um, it's going to offer something um, to us in in the sense of our humanity. Uh, not just it's not just going to be about technology, and uh, so I. I, I I agree with you there, and I guess I'd like you know. So, um, in the writing of the book, you know, we, when we, whenever we take on a, a writing project, I, I know this from my own experience that uh, we think we're going to write down all the things we know, and and it turns out to be a learning experience uh, full of surprises. And so, I'm curious in this project, what as you were as you were writing and learning, what uh, what did you learn that surprised you the most in the writing of this? Book? Well, I think the 
probably the most important thing, other than having to cut 300 pages out of the final <laughs> manuscript, um, because it was longer than I had anticipated it would be. Sure. Um, and, and so there was a lot left out of the, of the book that I had thought about. But I think the thing which surprised me most was the breakdown of fundamental trust between universities, especially research universities, and the government. And it's a very interesting story. After the Second World War, um, you know, or really when Roosevelt uh, was ending his life, yep. basically, and of course his term as, uh, as president, he went to Vannevar Bush, not uh, related to the latter-day Bushes, and, uh, and asked him, well, what's going to happen to American science after the war, since it's been so successful in helping us in the war effort? And, and I should say, successful in the public mind. Many of the scientists were really heroes with their faces on the covers of Life magazine, Look magazine, Time, etc., um, they were even men of the year, and um, there was a uh, there was a real love affair between science, the universities, and um, uh, and the public. Uh, Vannevar Bush suggested that um, it was now time to move from little science really to big science, and that it was uh, time to have the government use public money, that is to say, taxpayer money to improve the quality of American life, both its health, both the quality of the people who are working in the job uh, market and who are going to be the future of the nation in terms of new technologies and knowing how to use them, and, uh, in a, and also, by the way, uh, maintaining American military supremacy. Um, well, his plan, which is probably the greatest social policy of science that has ever been put down on paper, was largely implemented with the formation of the National Science Foundation, the, the reconstruction of the National Institutes of Health, and for the decade of the 1960s following Roosevelt's death, um, there was an infusion of public money into the universities uh, for the purposes of research. And the brilliant idea, really, behind Vannevar Bush was the idea that he would outsource money to the universities to pay for research done at the universities rather than try to create a whole new system of national um, uh, institutes of, um, of, of research uh, bypassing the universities. And that, the, the effect of that was that it really um, linked teaching and research at the universities. And consequently, for the next 40 years, um, America began to build up its research enterprise, its teaching enterprise, its superiority in the creation of great students, great faculty members, and began to dominate the world. Now, to be sure, a lot of Europe that had been very good in science uh, were, was recovering from the Second World War. Uh, China hadn't really yet appeared on the scene. But nonetheless, there was a great deal of trust between the government and the compact that was formed with, yep. the, uh, with, with the universities. And, that uh, eroded and began to erode in the late 1980s and the 1990s to the point where there was increasing distrust between the government and the universities, the fear that the, uh, the universities were not using taxpayer dollars properly. They were, there was waste, fraud, and abuse, and no accountability on the part of universities. I think yeah, and that's I wanna, way, I'd like way to overstated. Just... Jump, jump in, and and I'd like to follow up on on the, the the distrust and how that arose. And we need to take a little bit of a break. But uh, after the break, sure. 
want to come back to the, come back to that point. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest uh, Jonathan Cole, and in the next segment, we want to talk about the breakdown of trust between universities um, in in the government. Stay tuned. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Are you looking to get noticed in today's business world? Listen for Chat with Chickles, what they couldn't teach you in business school. This is the show that will help you survive and thrive in business today. It's what you can do differently that will help you stand apart from everybody else in the field. Lisa Chickles and her guests can show you just how to gain that unique edge. Chat with Chickles can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Get the copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And uh, we, we're talking with John, Jonathan Cole from uh, Columbia University. Um, he's... Uh, He's author of the new book, Toward a More Perfect University. And, and before the break, we were talking about the ways in which uh, the, the original compact was formed uh, with Vannevar Bush, uh, an electrical engineer from, from MIT, actually, as uh, head, of the, uh, head of the research effort in the war for uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And then uh, the formation, the um, uh, science, the endless frontier, and, and the, the the coming of the National Science Foundation and the growth of the strong universities. Uh, you know, Stanford wasn't Stanford before that, and became the great university that's become. And the, the other universities were were growing on on the backs of this uh, funding stream. But before the break, Jonathan, you were talking about the the breakdown in trust in in the eighties and the the sense of boondogglery and so forth. What what was that all about? Well, I think, um, you know, part of the uh, concern that the government had was that the universities were misusing federal dollars for research projects. And there were incidents which occurred which led to regulation. When you distrust somebody, you try to create laws. I mean, Emile Durkheim, the famous um, sociologist, uh, 19th century France, 
once said that all the important things in a contract are not written in the contract. And I think that's true about basically interrelationships between universities and the government. But when you don't trust the universities, you start regulating them, and you, you create regulation after regulation. And so I found out, and as you asked earlier, one of my surprises was there are over 4,000 regulations that regulate just the research part of research universities. And university professors are now estimated to spend roughly 40% of their time filling out forms and paper and doing government paperwork rather than doing the science that they were funded to do. And 10% of university budgets are now being allocated is as unfunded mandates to the um, fulfilling the requirements, reporting requirements of the federal uh, of the federal government, and I think that really needs to be reversed. I mean, the, the the government has got to realize that universities represent, through their research, the economic engines of innovation and discovery that have led to a higher quality of life, a better economy, and indeed, um, potentially, an even stronger uh, economy in the United States if universities are left to do their business and to do it well. Uh, Now, in turn, the universities have got to make sure that they are not going to be involved in conflict of interests with pharmaceutical companies. They're not going to allow, um, you know, various forms of abuse or cheating. And they have to uh, come down very hard on those few people who are involved in those kinds of uh, activities. So um, I make actually a whole series of proposals in this book about how the federal government ought to get back into the business of uh, funding both research and education uh, in the United States. And I do that through what I call the creation of the Moral Three Act. I'd I'd be happy to explain that to you if you'd like. Yeah, and I and I want to. well, why, yeah, why don't we why don't we go ahead? Why don't, tell, tell us about the well, Moral Three Act. I think you know many people would not necessarily know that the first Moral Act was uh, passed uh, during the uh, administration of Abraham Lincoln in 1862 sure. during the Civil War, and it was um, designed to create what we call land grant colleges and research stations. Uh, many of those in uh, of the great state universities come out of that uh, that act of Congress, um, and the second Moral Act created the uh, historically black colleges, and the government has uh, periodically intervened with the GI Bill of Rights, for example, to stimulate uh, the growth of the population in college and to stimulate research. Um, they've done it through um, financial aid programs like Pell Grant programs and the like. But a lot of this is rather stagnated or, as I say, is, has been over-controlled. And what I would like to see, frankly, is the federal government become more involved than they have been in the past in making sure that every child who is uh, needy but who is talented is able to complete a college work and um, will have the means to do so. So uh, they would increase financial aid, but it would be based, obviously, on means so that they can, uh, that a kid who's in uh, Michigan can make sure that he can go to college or the University of Michigan 
um, paying uh, just what he can afford or even uh, go tuition-free. Now, I think if you're a very rich uh, person in Michigan, you should pay for your education, which, by the way, is $7,000 a year, not the $55,000 that we hear associated with the Ivy League institutions. But um, if uh, the federal government helps support education in the states, states that have been cutting back tremendously on their support of higher education, um, but without giving the uh, states the right to cut back further on their commitment to education, I think we can uh, both increase uh, access to education, especially among uh, minorities and the poor, and, uh, and increase the quality of the, uh, of the student body as well. The other aspect of the Moral Three Act would be to create really a federal foundation for science, technology, and scholarship, which would be sort of modeled after the Howard Hughes Foundation. It would identify young people of extraordinary talent. It would fund them for five years. They wouldn't have to go through bureaucratic nightmares all the time, and their work would be evaluated after five years as to the quality of that uh, that work. And the federal government would put up research money for those uh, those individuals. And one other element in it, and then I'll stop, is the creation of a federal institute for disease prevention and vaccine development. I mean, we see every time uh, the possibility of a pandemic crosses the United States, whether it's the one we see today um, or whether it's the Ebola uh, outbreak or whatever it might be, we're not really prepared uh, to uh, fight that with vaccines, and that's because most of these uh, things don't pan out, but when they do, they can cause thousands and thousands of deaths. And that is one of the areas where, like national defense, I think the government has a responsibility to the people to protect the public health and perhaps create uh, within the government a, um, an institute for vaccine development. And so, yeah, so I'm listening to these, these three things and, and I'm, I'm, my cash register is going off. And, and actually, it seems to me that part of what you talked about in the book was that, that we have a, an affordability problem as it is and that a good part of that problem comes from the, the existing uh, funding federal funding of of universities through through loans and so forth and that that the the fairly easy money that's is that's created this bubble in higher education borrowing is actually being used to finance the the runaway cost uh lack of cost control in in university so you know columbia university has tuition of $53,000 a year, if four of your students got together and pooled their money, they could hire one of your faculty members full-time uh, to, be their private, to be their private tutor for, uh, for, the, for the year. So, it, I mean, it, it, it's not like there's a lack of money in the system right now. I'm having trouble understanding how throwing more money at, at what is already a problem of federal money sloshing around actually solves it. Well, I mean, let's uh, give, me, give you an example from the state of California um, and, and the federal government. The state of California, over the last uh, eight years, from 2008, has reduced its commitment to the greatest system of public higher education I think the world has ever created by 30%. 
Sure. So 30% of the budgets that normally come from the state are no longer there, and they're asking Berkeley and UCLA and other places to uh, educate more students, do a better job, not hire uh, adjunct professors, yep. and they're withdrawing 30% of their funds. At the same time, during the exact same period of time, the government of, of California increased their allocation to prisons, to incarceration, by 130%. Now, that's a choice that people are making. They can choose to invest in higher education or to K-12 education, or they can uh, you know, put kids who are not committing fel- felonies but who get life sentences or 30-year sentences, incarcerate them, um, and at a cost of about forty to fifty thousand dollars a year of incarceration for a single individual, and who, uh, with which they could send about three kids to Berkeley for uh, each year, and um, and that that is I, I want to impress upon the public that is a choice that we make. It's a matter of our own personal preferences or what. Milton Friedman's once called our revealed preferences. And I'm saying that we really ought to change that. I'm not saying we will, but I think that's what we ought to do. Uh, the book is really a normative statement about how we ought to change things. Uh, and I don't uh, claim it's going to be easy necessarily to do this. But, for example, um, why not uh, you know, add a marginal tax rate to the people who earn a million dollars or more and increase the revenues to the federal government that could be used for education, the cure of disease, research, etc., uh, and for good purposes. Uh, and even people like Condoleezza Rice, who is, of course, former Secretary of State, she was provost at Stanford and a conservative person, uh, came out with a report for the Council on Foreign Relations saying investments in higher education are at least as important to the national defense as investments in bombers or on, you know, drones or whatever that might uh, be by way of military hardware. So it is a form, really, of national defense to invest um, in, in, in education without allowing ourselves to buy out the base of the commitment that the state has to education. Well, and, and of course, no one's arguing against higher education. Certainly not on this this program. But there is a, there is a question of who's going to pay and how much, and and do we have our do we have our costs under 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 control? And and um, you know, th- th- there there were things in in your book about the number of um, you know we we talk about um, back in the old days the faculty. Professor Merton and Professor Hofstetter and the, well, some of the professors you, you mentioned would teach four and five classes, so the quote-unquote teaching load. Of course, no one we don't talk yeah. about research load, but but we do talk about teaching load, and so the teaching load was much higher. So there's a, certainly a productivity issue under the hood here that we're 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 sweeping under the rug a little bit, and and not only that, but the faculty member ba- faculty members back in the, those times uh, made. Very, much more modest salaries than they do now. Uh, I think in, in almost any any measure that we we care to use. So some of the star power that we've invested in in research faculty has gone to competition between elite universities that have have raised salaries in in a way that mm-hmm. is. And so you were you were talking about a lack of 
of trust. I think there's a there's a lack. You were talking about lack of trust between government and the public. Isn't there a lack of trust between the public and the universities in terms of whether these costs are under control and whether universities are are spending these money this money wisely when when a, when a school like Columbia can charge fifty five thousand dollars a year for a single person to go to school? Well, I think that's a it's a very good question, and I have no doubt that uh, the universities could do still better than they do. And I think you're absolutely right when you say that the uh, there's been enormous competition for faculty members. Yeah. It's, it's really the era of academic free agency, um, and one of the worst things the university has have done universities have done in the last twenty years has been negotiate on course reduction. Uh, so it's true that uh, faculty members are not teaching the same kind of teaching loads that they did in the past. So there's no question that the um, there are areas in which the universities have to uh, take action uh, to control costs. The one that I think you didn't state, but which is perhaps most important, okay. is that uni- universities have an enormous ability at conception, at early gestation, at um, uh, maturation, but they have no concept of death. So something that comes into being, whether it's an institute to study the environment or whatever it might be, comes into being, but no matter what it does or if it does anything, it never, never leaves the scene. It doesn't ever get cut out of the budget. And that is extremely unfortunate, and it has to do with the way in which governance is structured at universities and the power of faculty over administrators. Yeah, um, I, I, why don't I stop at that? I think we need to, I think that's something we should address in the next uh, segment. I think, and I, and I, and I appreciate the honest scholarship in your book, um, in, in calling some of these negative issues out on, on the table. The universe, our universities are great. We all love them. And I, I think it's a matter of, um, differences of opinion as to, you know, how far along they are and, and how much trust they've lost. But, uh, but I, 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 I do appreciate the, the things that you've written about in the scholarship and in your text. And I think let's, let's take a little bit of a break and come back to, to that governance point. Cause I think it actually is, is central to, to how things spin out of control. This is a big sure. beacon radio with our special guest, Jonathan Cole. And in the next segment, let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, governance in the university and and um, and how how things come off the rails a little bit. If you want to learn how to be a better leader, increase your level of business performance, and motivate your team and organization more effectively, listen for performing at your best. Mindset Evolution with Luis Vicente Garcia. Luis Vicente and his guests will share their expertise and enthusiasm in helping you to succeed. It's combining that drive with business skills that will do just that. Tune in live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. 
David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back. Get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to help transform higher education at your school at 3joy.com. And in the last segment, uh, we were talking with Jonathan Cole from Columbia University, and we were talking about, uh, about governance and, and uh, this, this, the, the way in which uh, faculty, uh, faculty votes and, and faculty, faculty democracy in a certain way um, is, uh, can be an obstacle to making some of the kinds of trans- reforms and, and uh, transformations that we would like. Uh, and Jonathan, what, do you, what, what more would you like to say about that? Well, I think that um, the governance of, uh, of universities is one of the areas in which we need change. Um, the, the differentiation between faculty responsibilities and the leadership of administrative leadership, academic leadership of universities has been pretty well set for about 50 years. And uh, all I can say is that one leads the university, if you're a president or provost, by what we call authority, by the, really by the will of the governed, but not by power, as you might in um, a business organization. If the, uh, if the will of the, the faculty um, undermines your position or votes against you, um, you're probably not going to be in office for very long. Yep. The fact of the matter is that uh, the trustees of the university or the board of regents of most universities, even the great universities, know very little about how universities are organized or how they're actually run. They take their roles uh, and their very important roles as largely symbolic and uh, largely honorific. But if you ask them really about the nature of the universities, they can't tell you very much. And they're not really very prepared to think about structural changes which would allow the university to become more nimble. And I do believe that the relationship between the president, the provost, the faculty, and trustees needs to be made far far clearer in the future if we're going to see adjustments in the university's uh, structures. And what I mean by that is that the um, one has to, first of all, find extraordinary leaders. And I think that uh, to be very candid, I think most uh, universities have good, hardworking, uh, but not terribly innovative, not very charismatic leaders. They're more like placeholders. But in order to get innovative leaders, you have to give them the authority to be able to move and to make changes in the institution. So um, the creation of certain kinds of institutes, the creations of certain kinds of new departments or even new colleges, and more importantly, closing down 
some archaic ones, which are not doing anything of any value, has got to be more in the hands of the administrative leaders and their head, and the heads of the university, generally the regents or the trustees, than they have been for 50 or 75 years, where it's been largely controlled by the faculty. The faculty should, you know, should control admissions, they should control the curriculum, uh, the teaching functions, the promotion functions, the recruitment functions, but they can't necessarily control the budget functions the way they like to. And one of the reasons why you get enormous resistance by faculty members in any form of change is because they think they're but for the God go I. If you bring down a program that hasn't done a thing in 20 years, they think they're the next ones on the chopping block. And that is not a very good menu or uh, for, for change at, at a university. So in, in, a whole, really in a whole new engineer, we call this the, the academic NIMBY problem. It's like this sighting of a nuclear power plant. Everyone says, oh, reform is great. Just don't change my course. And so the, the, exactly. the, not in my backyard. No, and so that we, and then, and then exactly. not only that, you get the log rolling that takes place. If you vote not to change mine, I'll vote not to change yours. And so the, and at the end of the day, these coalitions end up a stifling, uh, stifling change of any sort. Yeah, I think it's true. And, you you know, there's something good about the conservatism of change at universities so you don't fall for every fad and fashion that's out there. On the other hand, uh, moving this tanker is very, very, very difficult. And what happens is that a lot of the structures become ossified. And we need to be able to put a new kind of vigor into the structures of the university because the way knowledge is growing is different from the way it was growing 75 or 25 years ago. Knowledge is now becoming something which involves great complex problems requiring the work of many people in many different fields. And what I suggest in terms of structure is to create de facto, not de jure, but de facto academic leagues that focus on certain kinds of problems. So, for example, if you want to focus on inequality of wealth, you would have leagues that would include people who are in France, who are in England, who are in the United States, at Berkeley, at Columbia, at um, at Cambridge, or various universities, and they would form a league in which students could take courses by anybody in the league at any of these universities. And in turn, they could also study with uh, them. And in fact, they might exchange even uh, locations for a period of time. That is to say, a Princeton professor comes to New York and stays in New York for a while and vice vice versa. So, uh, yeah, I, and I, I just let me hop in because I, I, th- I agree with you that I think, uh, and actually, I think this ties back to the idea of MOOCs. I think, in many ways, MOOCs are uninteresting insofar as they're just about uh, bringing coursework, uh, you know, this professor, that professor from this great university or that great university online. What's interesting is the new institutional arrangements, all, in many ways, uh, along the lines of your suggestion for leagues, essentially, Coursera is a league of universities that have come together under the banner of, 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 of putting ed tech out there. But, but the, the real, the real possibility for Coursera or edX or, or Udacity and, and the others is, is to come together in the way that you're saying. I, I agree with the point. Yes, that you're I making. agree with you. 
I agree with you. You know, the only uh, difference I would say is that, you know, these uh, platforms like Corsair and edX, they're really uh, at the very beginning of the technological innovations, and there'll be many more sophisticated platforms, some of which will be created by individual professors. Follow the professors in terms of their creation of leagues. They collaborate with people who are good regardless of where they are. So to just give you one example, and only one example, because I know time runs short, Sure. Um, you might have physicists who nominally work for Harvard or for the University of Michigan, the University of Wisconsin, Berkeley, or Columbia. But if they're looking for the Higgs boson, they're really a community of scholars working at CERN. And they work together on solving that problem. And increasingly, universities have to bring together people on their own campus who come from multiple disciplines, who break down the borders uh, between and among schools, but also the borders between universities, and create these kinds of leagues, which potentially, I believe, can reduce costs and increase quality for the students and also lead to more rapid advances in the discovery uh, that relate to and very important to societal problems. Yeah, and I and actually I think you know so there's there's a sense of of there's sort of uh, there's uh, extramural leagues and they're also in to use the metaphor intramural leagues and I think right. some of what was some of the innovation we're seeing around the world is is a kind of intramural league. Uh, you called for cooperation among professional schools and the liberal arts, and we're seeing more of that. Uh, under the guise of different, there are different languages used sometimes pilot program, incubators, uh, programs, incubators not to create new businesses, but incubators to create these, these networks of faculty and students working together to, to create a, a different kind of educational experience. In some ways, a back to the future educational experience where students and faculty interact one on one. Right. And I think that the new technology is going to allow us to transcend the time and space continuum so that it is possible if we can give up some of our, you know, huge institutional identity and sort of selfishness to uh, maximize opportunities for faculty and students by creating these kinds of both intramural and, and extramural uh, knowledge leagues and knowledge communities uh, that could have an enormous effect on higher education. Well, and, and one of the things, and this goes to, and I, I liked uh, some of your writing about the compact, and it, it was at a, it was at a, the big level, there's sort of micro and macro versions of almost every one of the concepts in your book, the way as I was reading it. But the, the, the sense of um, this this kind of agreement, and so one of the, the, the things that we, we saw in the uh, iFoundry incubator at Illinois, the Illinois Foundry for Innovation and Engineering Education, was the idea that that um, – that there was a basic bargain. We were sort of we were reworking the bargain on faculty governance just a little bit, but in a way that seemed acceptable. We said, "Look, we can't have these deals where faculty can kill innovation. We need to innovate, but we at the end of the day, let's allow the innovation to take place in pilot form, and we won't allow that innovation to become permanent until there has been a faculty vote." And and I thought that bargain actually was a good bargain that kind of restored. And again, there's that word again, trust of the faculty in the administration and, and the yep. governance structure in a, in a nice way. Yeah, you know, that sounds like a very, very intelligent effort, I must say. Yeah, so we've got about, uh, we've, we've got about four minutes left, and, and uh, there's some, your, your book is so rich, but uh, what are some of the one or two things that our, our listeners should know um, uh, 
about uh, about your writing uh, and and this and this project that we haven't talked about so far? Well, all I would say is I, I hope they purchase toward a more perfect uh, university, which is of course available um, online, or they can uh, you know order it at bookstores. But um, it really tries to cover the uh, a large segment of the university. Uh, in term, everything from getting in and the admissions policies of universities to the role of undergraduate education and a liberal arts education to the importance of the humanities that we haven't had a chance to really discuss yeah. and, and to take a hard look at the professional schools and whether or not they add value to the university and uh, or are they there just for income purposes. Uh, there are chapters which really look at the affordability of of colleges and uh, and how we might uh, be able to make them more open and more affordable, especially for those young people and their families who up to this point uh, can't uh, afford it. And finally, the uh, kind of amusing but interesting chapters, we haven't rethought uh, the way in which the university campus ought to be organized. Certainly we haven't in 100 years, probably not in 600 years. And I have a chapter in there rethinking and reimagining the university campus in a completely different way. And I think the readers would find that interesting. Yeah, I, I guess I want to finish um, in, in talking about the – you raise in, in the middle of the text uh, some really important things about, uh, about values. We've talked a little bit about, uh, about trust and, and we've and, uh, got a couple minutes left, maybe one minute. Uh, but you know, I, I, this, this point about trust and you talked about it in terms of the government and, and the university, but it's, it seems as though there's, there's been a breakdown in – actually not just in universities but a breakdown in trust in, in many of our institutions, uh, may, some of it perhaps technologically motivated. Uh, you know, what, what, what more can you say about this new uh, compact and values? And we've got about uh, 30 seconds. Well, I think that it's essential to do. It's very hard to restore trust once it's broken down, but we have to find ways in which uh, we do it. And the way we do it is to become uh, examples of best practices, and we have to uh, make sure that people are aware of it. We're terrible advertisers for ourselves at, at universities. We do just a horrendous job at telling the public uh, what we do. We have to do it um, uh, in, in a way that gives them a sense of how uh, these discoveries which change their lives come from there, what we're doing with students which make them better citizens and make them more knowledgeable, more prepared for the market uh, place. So there's a great deal that we need to do to uh, increase the trust, not only with the government, but as you said, also with the public. And we, uh, we have some distance to go on that, but it's imperative that we begin that journey. Great. And so if, if our readers, our listeners want to find out um, more about your work, uh, is there a website or an email address they can contact? Yeah, there's a website, uh, you know, that's, uh, that uh, they can find online. Uh, just, if they just put my name in online to a Google search or any other search, they'll find the, uh, the website uh, to, uh, to click on if they want to read uh, other articles and other um, pieces that I've written. Um, but, you know, for this purposes, if they they were to think of it as a combination if they more taught a, a more perfect university and uh, the prior book, which is really the, uh, the groundwork for this book, which is the Great American University, I think they would get a real feeling for the nature of universities, where we are, and where we need to go. Great. 
And thanks for, uh, Jonathan, our call. Thank you for being on our, our show today. Uh, it's been, been a pleasure having you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. You bet. And so you've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. A special thanks to Jonathan Cole. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.